Hello everybody, welcome to episode 35 of Life and Life Only, and this is the concluding part of a two-parter called Legends and Folly, the remarkable story of RMS Titanic. Now obviously if you haven't heard part one, it would be a very good idea to listen to that first. However, just in case you've downloaded this episode by accident, if that's possible, or you've just subscribed to the podcast, and this is the first episode that's downloaded itself, and for whatever reason you're not in a position to listen to part one, I will recap where we've got to in the story in a minute. Might be a good refresher anyway if you listened to part one a while ago. Before that, I just wanted to set the scene again. You may remember that I was recording part one on a Sunday afternoon just as it was getting dark, and also there were fireworks going off in the background for the bonfire night celebrations. And in fact, they started around the time that I was telling you about the Titanic firing off distress rockets. Well, I'm here again on another Sunday, three weeks later, around the same time, and this time there's a Christmas do happening a few streets away. I've just been out for my regular walk and happened to get back just as it started chucking it down with rain. And there are due to be fireworks later, actually, for this celebration. So we'll see when they start. As I told you last time, this is an essay I wrote in 2019. Very long essay. And I'd also just like to reiterate that a fair amount of what I wrote and what I'm reading here comes verbatim from Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember, plus a couple of documentaries I mentioned last time in a series called Titanic, The Complete Story from the A&E Network. There were corrections made courtesy of one of the consultants on a recent book called On a Sea of Glass, which may well be the final word as much as anything can be on most of the details of the story. I have added some details and some writing of my own. I've reworded some of the things from Waterlord's book, so this is part original and partly taken from that book and the documentaries. All relevant materials, of course, are in the show notes. As I said in part one, I'm going to make the assumption that you all know something about the fate of the Titanic, but I'll do the briefest of recaps. Titanic launched in 1911, and along with its sister ship, Olympic, was the largest ship in the world, with luxurious surroundings unknown at that time at least for first class passengers and relative luxury for the second and third class passengers though the discrepancy between first and third class also known as steerage in accommodation economic means style of dress and other things was vast the ship set sail on its maiden voyage from southampton england on august 10th 1912 bound for new york via queenstown in ireland now known as cobb and cherbourg in france The voyage was very uneventful and smooth until just before midnight on Sunday, April 14th, when the ship struck an iceberg. There had been ice warnings coming through and historians have suggested complacency on the part of Captain Smith and others and crucially of the age itself, which was an age of prosperity and relative peace, though that would soon change with this disaster and some of the truly terrible events to come in the next few decades. The collision with the iceberg was felt very strongly by those working in the boiler rooms and others generally at the bottom of the ship, which, as I said last time, were the third-class passengers, while up top, the first-class passengers registered a slight jolt and were generally more complacent and unaffected for about the first hour and a half, I'd say, after the collision. The symbolism of that is just about perfect as a reflection of society and the various crises that affect the world. I'm not talking about the World War specifically, although no doubt the poor suffered most there, but certainly with economic crises, for example, the 2008 global financial crisis, the rich were not inconvenienced too much and it was generally the poor that got picked off, so to speak, or were devastated in many cases. Following the collision, the designer Thomas Andrews told Captain Smith that the ship 
deemed to be unsinkable, was certain to founder and had around an hour and a half to stay afloat, although it actually did float quite a bit longer than that. There were two wireless operators, Philips and Bride, both badly paid and overworked with messages from rich people utilising the novelty of this wireless technology. They sent out distress messages, including the world's first SOS, to the various ships in the Atlantic that could pick up their signal. And we left the story at 1.50am on Monday 16th of April 1912 as Harold Cottam, the wireless operator on what is about to become the rescue ship Carpathia, has just received what will be the last message he picks up from Phillips on the Titanic that says, Come as quickly as possible, old man. The engine room is filling up to the boilers. Now lifeboats have been swung out and Titanic actually has four collapsible boats as well as a regulation number of boats, but nowhere near enough to accommodate all the passengers on the ship. Many of the boats left not even close to capacity for reasons I've already outlined in part one, and there's some difficulty getting people into them, certainly at the beginning, but by the point we've reached, everyone seems to be aware that this is a desperate situation, even if they may not know, ultimately, the fate of the ship. So, let's continue. Hang on to your hats, as they say, because what you're about to hear is a quite extraordinary and quite shocking set of events, but which did yield some positive results amongst the tragedy as you'll hear later, and certain changes were made that prevented something like this happening again on this scale. And Sometimes all you can do really is try and learn certain lessons and try and make positive changes in the future. So, let's go. By now the roar of steam had died, the nerve-wracking rockets had stopped, but the slant of the deck was steeper and there was an ugly list to port. By this point there was no trouble persuading people to leave the ship. A young boy used a woman's shawl and got on a boat in disguise. Lifeboat 14 was rushed by a wave of men being beaten back with the tiller. Lowe threatened them with his gun and fired three times along the side of the ship as the boats dropped down to the sea. A big mob pushed and shoved around collapsible boat C, but the officers finally got it off. Bruce's May was around this boat, calmer than before and helping to get the boat ready for lowering, now every inch a member of the crew. At the last moment he climbed into boat C, just one passenger of 42 in the boat. Inside the ship, one passenger stayed sitting in the first-class smoking room, reading alone. Reverend Bateman called to his sister-in-law entering a boat, that, If I don't meet you again in this world, I will in the next, taking off his necktie and tossing it to her as a keepsake. Benjamin Guggenheim and his valet took off their life jackets and dressed in their best, quote, prepared to go down like gentlemen. What choice the valet had in what was basically an act of suicide is something worth pondering. At the point where it became every man for himself a little later, all semblance of duty and employer-employee relationships quite rightly went out of the window. As Titanic's life afloat ebbed away, the passenger areas inside the ship started to flood. The water, which up to now had only existed outside the ship, was now inside and creeping up the staircase as the ship got lower and lower. The forward first-class staircase went down to E-deck, and to stand on the boat deck and look over the balustrade into an open well through five decks and see green seawater swirling around, getting higher and higher, must have been a terrifying moment for anyone witnessing it. As the number of boats left to be packed and lowered away dropped to two, the water had now reached sea deck, rising fast. Paradoxically, all the lights still burned bright, illuminating the clear night, and the music was up-tempo, lively ragtime. Second officer Lightoller, steadfastly sticking to what seemed like a system of women and children only, wouldn't even let John Astor, the richest man on the ship, into lifeboat four, so stern was his policy. Astor asked the number of the boat. 
either to locate his wife or, to light Ola's mind, to make a complaint later. At 2am there was only collapsible D left, ready for loading. The lights were beginning to glow red and chinaware could be heard breaking somewhere below. One male passenger drained a full bottle of gin and later survived. Lightoller took no chances with the last boat since there were now 47 seats for over 1,500 people, even though most had moved aft. He had the crew lock arms in a wide ring around the boat, only letting the women through. Two baby boys were placed in the boat by their father, Mr. Michael Hoffman, the Frenchman who was kidnapping the children from his estranged wife. At 2.05am the boat was lowered into the sea. With the boats gone, a curious calm came over the ship. The excitement and confusion of that phase of the drama were over, and those left behind stood quietly on the upper decks, trying to keep as far away from the rail as possible. One man opened his wallet and poured his money over the side of the ship, while others played on the gymnasium's equipment, and one lady played the piano, waiting for the end. As the freezing water appeared to be rising towards the boat deck, as opposed to the boat actually sinking into it, there were hopeless efforts to clear two more collapsibles lashed to the roof of the officers' quarters. Passenger Jack Thayer felt far away, as though he were looking on from some other place. Sixty feet below the deck, deep down in the boiler rooms, the engineers and firemen toiled away in the stifling and dangerous heat, trying to keep Titanic's lights glowing and her power to transmit messages strong. Quite a number worked down there until almost the last minute, when there was nothing else that could be done, and the engineers finally released them and by the time many of them came up to the upper decks, the lifeboats were all gone. In the wireless shack, Phillips was still working the set with Bride standing by, but the power was very low. At 2.05, Captain Smith entered the shack for the last time. Men, you have done your full duty. You can do no more. Abandon your cabin now. It's every man for himself. Phillips continued working, sending his final wireless message at 2.10am, while Smith went round the ship releasing different groups of workers, repeating the every-man-for-himself mantra. Some jumped for it and managed to reach the lifeboats, others stayed on board to see what fate had in store. By the forward entrance to the grand staircase, the band, now wearing life jackets, scraped lustily away at ragtime. The calm continued for a while on the boat as people braced themselves for the drama to come. Within the ship, the heavy silence of the deserted rooms had a drama of its own, the crystal chandeliers of the a la carte restaurant hung at a crazy angle, but they still burned brightly. Some of the small table lights had fallen over. The main lounge with its big fireplace was silent and empty. One passerby could hardly believe that four hours earlier the room had been filled with the most exquisitely dressed ladies and gentlemen sipping after-dinner coffee. According to Walter Lord's book A Night to Remember, the smoking room was not completely empty, and a steward had apparently looked in at 2.10 and found Thomas Andrews standing all alone in the room, with a stunned look on his face. His life jacket was thrown away, and all his drive and energy were gone. Andrews didn't answer when asked if he was going to try and save himself, and simply gazed at a large painting of Plymouth Harbour, called The Approach of the New World, which hung over the elegant marble fireplace. However, later research found that the incident had happened prior to the steward leaving the ship at 1.30am, and that Andrews had been seen on the bridge at 2.10 just to interject for a second, the scene of the steward finding Andrews was brilliantly represented in the 1958 Night to Remember film. And as a dramatic moment, I think it works wonderfully well, but it does appear that uh, the very dramatic legends didn't actually happen. Out on the deck, people waited, some prayed, and the band played on. 
Others seemed lost in thought, a mass of humanity awaiting its fate calmly and still without too much outward panic. Hundreds now accumulated at the stern of the ship. They had only ten minutes to live at this point, though they wouldn't have known that, and would perhaps have retained some faith in the great ship that it would last longer than expected, or even perform some kind of miracle with a hitherto unknown safety feature magically kicking in at the last minute. Reflection time was short, but perhaps the ignored ice warnings would have played on Captain Swift's mind, the last telling them exactly where to expect the berg. Phillips could ponder the ice warning that he had replied angrily to earlier, and which had never reached the bridge. At 2.10 in the wireless shack, Phillips continued to work, Bride later talking of the reverence he felt for him amid the chaos of those last 10 or 15 minutes. He and Bride knocked unconscious a stoker who tried to take Phillips's life jacket, deliberately consigning him to a certain death. They'd reached several ships by now who were steaming towards the stricken liner. Other than the Carpathia and later the Californian, it's unclear at what point they turned back or if they reached the spot. Twenty miles away, the mystery ship was seen off the port bow, agonisingly close. It's interesting to think of this lull period before the ship actually sinks, because it's, it is a time for reflection, and I think perhaps the certain calmness that came over the ship before it actually sank is something to do with resignation. Once you stop either physically or mentally or both fighting a situation, there is a calmness that comes over it and uh, perhaps even a certain peace. But, you know, let's not glorify it because what's about to happen in the next 10 minutes is anything but peaceful and anything but glorious. But uh, I think for the ones who survived, the reflection time they had during the disaster, if they were on a lifeboat and following the disaster, probably would have added quite a bit to their life in terms of their attitude. I think I do say something about that later on. When the wireless operators finally cleared out, Phillips disappeared and Bride joined the men trying to free collapsibles A and B. With the deck slanting, it was impossible to launch them, but they decided to float them off, so they toiled on, including Lytoller. Boat B was pushed to the edge of the roof and slid down on some oars to the deck, landing upside down. Boat A was a struggle as well, and the men were tugging at both collapsibles when the bridge dipped under at 2.15 and the sea rolled aft along the boat deck. There was a sudden group of people pouring up from below who all seemed to be steerage passengers. The band was still there and at this moment the ragtime ended and the strains of a slower song led by violinist Hartley flowed across the deck and drifted in the still night far out over the water and within earshot of the boat. Howard Bride remembered this song as the hymn Autumn, though his testimony was later proved to be somewhat flawed in a number of respects. Most would claim that the song played at this point was Nearer My God to Thee, which would of course have had an unbearable poignancy and would become an anthem of later dramatic representations of the disaster. Down dipped the Titanic's bow and its stern swung slowly up. As the tilt grew steeper, a wave went surging aft up the boat deck, hitting dozens of people and crashing through the dome of the forward first-class staircase, destroying the dome itself and sending huge amounts of water cascading inside it. The forward funnel toppled over, striking the water on the starboard side with a shower of sparks and a crash of tons of steel heard above the general uproar. It was actually a blessing to Lightoller, Bride and the others clinging to overturned collapsible B, which was washed 30 yards clear of the plunging, twisting hull by the force of the wave and the falling funnel. Colonel Archibald Gracie rose as if on the crest of a wave at the seashore, but in the process lost his friend Clinch Smith, with whom he'd made a pact to remain together to the end. 
By the fourth funnel, the ship was swinging higher and higher, and a survivor heard a popping and cracking, a series of muffled thuds and the crash of glassware. The slant of the deck grew so steep that people couldn't stand and instead slid into the water. Amid the chaos, nobody knows exactly what happened to Captain Smith except his tragic final demise. He was seen just before the end by a steward walking onto the bridge, still with his megaphone in hand. Bride saw Smith dive from the bridge into the sea, and he was also seen later in the water by a fireman holding a child. Those in the boats either watched in absolute silence or buried their heads on each other's shoulders, unable to look. Seen and unseen, the great and the unknown tumbled together in a writhing heap as the bow plunged deeper and the stern rose higher. At 2.18am, the lights went out, flashed on again, then went out for good, plunging all involved into a horrifying darkness. Not quite, though, as a single kerosene lantern flickered high in the aftermath. The muffled thuds and tinkle of breaking glass grew louder, and a steady roar, a cacophony, thundered across the water as everything not bolted down broke loose. There's never been a mixture like it. Among the mind-boggling array of items were 29 boilers, 800 cases of shelled walnuts, 15,000 bottles of ale and stout, huge anchor chains each weighing 175 pounds, 30 cases of golf clubs and tennis rackets, tons and tons of coal, 30,000 fresh eggs, five grand pianos, a 50-phone switchboard, two reciprocating engines, a revolutionary low-pressure turbine, eight dozen tennis balls, a cask of china for Tiffany's, an ice-making machine and 16 beautifully packed trunks for the wealthy Ryersons. Out in the boats they could scarcely believe their eyes, some having watched for nearly two hours as the Titanic ominously sank lower and lower, hoping against hope that God or someone would save them. They saw decks and decks of people waiting, looking like bees, milling around and hoping. Survivor Ruth Becker remembered that the ship looked beautiful in the dark night, the ocean like a mill pond. As the bow sank, some headed for the part of the deck not yet in the water, postponing the plunge and in fact lessening their chances by being crowded with others. Second officer Lightoller instead jumped for it, later describing hitting the water at this point four degrees below freezing point as like, quote, a thousand knives being driven into my body. The life belts were largely futile in water like this. Next was heard a different kind of sound, a tremendous booming, cracking, popping, explosive sound which was the ship breaking in two between the third and fourth funnels. As the bow fell, the stern settled back, and even now it may have seemed to some that the stern might hold and become its own lifeboat. Alas, it came to an even keel just briefly, before rising to be perfectly perpendicular and then going down on its own. When the final plunge happened, it was the most horrifying moment of all. Beauty of the night turned to a violent ugliness. There was an unearthly din, the black hole hanging at 90 degrees across a Christmas card backdrop of brilliant stars. There was also a groan not unlike a primitive leviathan in the throes of death as the Titanic slid under, picking up speed as she went. And then she was gone. In collapsible sea, Ismay bent over his oar, unable to bear seeing her go down. Many in the boats just sat freezing cold and in a daze, showing no emotion. On the Californian, Stone and Gibson watched the ship that had fascinated them all night suddenly disappear. Twenty minutes earlier at 2am, the steamer's lights had been very low on the horizon and the two men felt she must be steaming away, as they then told the captain. The sleepy lord asked the time and for details about the rockets and rolled back over to get back to sleep. As the sea closed over the Titanic, 
Lady Cosmo Duff Gordon remarked to her secretary, There's your beautiful nightdress gone. A remark that you would like to think was ironic, but possibly wasn't. The Titanic story was, no pun intended, a story of shallowness and depth. Later there were tales of great heroism and humans reaching out to each other, some sacrificing themselves to save others. So I'd just like to make a little interjection. As you heard there, the lights apparently did go out about five minutes before the ship sank. However, some witnesses have talked about seeing the ship go down. So, uh, you know, there were stars in the sky, but it, it appears that it was fairly a fairly black night. As with a lot of these things, we now know that accounts vary, even people who saw things apparently with their own eyes sometimes can't agree on it. So let's just take the information we've got and... Uh, Use that to help us understand what's happening here. Over the grave of the great ship hung a thin, smoky vapour. The glassy sea was littered with crates, deck chairs and many other objects that emerged from below. Survivor Eva Hart said later that The sounds of people drowning is something I cannot possibly describe to you, and neither can anyone else. Then there's a dreadful silence that follows it. It is truly impossible to imagine 1,500 people in the 28 degree, well below freezing, water, screaming and thrashing around, clinging to the wreckage in each other. Every man for himself can bring out our most primitive instincts for survival, and our sense of our own civilised modern ways soon goes out the window as we feel life ebbing away. For those who kept their heads and their stamina, collapsibles A and B, one swamped, one upside down, were two possible sources of escape from the most awful of watery fates. After the fall of the funnel had washed them away, some lucky and strong swimmers came upon them, Eventually there were two dozen people, including a tennis star, a couple of Swedes, a fireman with badly burned hands and a steward. Boat A drifted away and the people kept coming. Collapsible B was closer and those grasping for it were more vocal. Bride and Lightoller were there before the Titanic sank, the former under the boat gulping for air. Colonel Archibald Gracie was there too and hauled himself onto the boat, as did Bride. The boat wallowed under the weight of thirty men and some were beaten off with oars. One more will sink us all, some on the boat shouted to those in the water. Another swimmer nearby never asked to come on and was in any case too far gone to take hold of an oar and climb aboard. This may have been Captain Smith. Imagine in the water a man of his authority and rank. In the dark nobody would know who he was, but if they did, would he and should he get special treatment? The instinct would be to prioritise his safety and still treat him as a leader, but what was the right course of action? At this point in the dark, all were more or less equalised, their survival now a matter of physical strength, will and luck, rather than ship status. Lytola solved the riddle somewhat by displaying leadership qualities which would have been beyond most, with or without the freezing conditions, the horror of the situation and the intense feelings of discomfort and despair. Therefore, his elevation to a position of authority was due to his practical step of physically taking charge rather than having a symbolic right. So let's pause and I would like you to try to grasp how utterly surreal and of course horrific this scene is. You have 1,500 people, it's half past two in the morning, it's an April night, so it's not in the winter but neither is it in the summer and these people had fully expected to have gone to sleep three hours or so earlier, two hours and be having a peaceful sleep, but instead they're plunged into freezing temperatures. And in fact, in the 
on a sea of glass book, they actually had a table, I think it was, showing the amount of time you could survive in certain temperatures. And generally, people were expected to survive 10 to 20 minutes. Now, as always happens with these things, some people do defy what are apparently the laws of science, just as uh, Wim Hof, or Wim Hof, if you know that name, has. Perhaps to have some idea of what it's like to plunge into that water, you can, uh, on a winter's day or not a particularly hot day, go under your shower, turn it to freezing, and see how long you last. When you're not used to it, even 10 seconds of it seems unbearable. Now, Wim Hof has, in fact, inspired me to start taking cold showers, and it it is incredibly um, liberating and also makes you feel refreshed, rather like plunging into the cold sea when you're on holiday. If you feel tired, your tiredness goes away almost instantly, or if you've got hangover, if you're a drinker, that just disappears immediately. However, like I say, if you're not used to it, and if you're in that freezing water for more than 30 seconds, I can imagine it's unbearable. I suppose the thing they have in their favour is the human spirit and the survival mechanism that must kick in at that time. But added to the freezing temperatures and the physical discomfort is the fact that you're in the water in the dark with 1,500 people and you've got the horror of hearing all those people screaming around you. Plus the idea that even though these are probably mostly decent people, they're going to do whatever they can to survive and maybe you are as well. So as I just read there, the rules in a sense go out the window. Having said that, you know, we hear lots of tales of people about to die who will refuse to do certain things to survive anyway uh i think trying to picture this scene and uh really the whole idea of listening to this podcast and of me writing this essay and reading it to you is just to learn really and to be aware and to be thankful that we're not in that situation and the vast majority of us never have been and never will be in that kind of situation let's continue someone on the lifeboat suggested a prayer Like everything on the Titanic, the religious denominations were various and the Lord's Prayer was eventually settled on. The 712 survivors on the 20 lifeboats could scarcely comprehend having just witnessed the largest ship in the world, man's monument to civilization, technology and progress, disappear beneath the waves, but they now had a separate ordeal to face, one that would last for many cold and uncertain hours. While they were praying, other sounds drifted over the water, namely the sound of hundreds of swimmers crying for help, a sound that was a roar, a scream, a wail that haunted survivors for years. Individual voices were lost in a steady, overwhelming clamour, rather like thousands of fans at a cup final, or locusts on a midsummer night in Pennsylvania. The cries of the night meant one thing to lively, impulsive fifth officer Lowe, row back and help. Having escaped in boat 14, he'd rounded up 10, 12, 4 and collapsible D, and all five were tied together 150 yards from the ship. He took command, realising that sending multiple boats was suicide, but reasoning that his small flotilla, manned by able seamen, could do some good. His 55 passengers were divided among the other four boats, and one boat went back. It was nerve-wracking work playing musical chairs with rowboats at 2.30am in the middle of the Atlantic, and Lowe was impatient with some while shoving a terrified young boy in disguise into boat 10. It took time for all this and for the number of swimmers to thin out to make the expedition safe, an agonising thing to have to do, to let people die in 28 degrees in order to save others. It was after 3am but there was little left by the time they got there. 
Boat 14 spent an hour playing Blind Man's Bluff, listening to voices in the night, and only picked up four in the end. Third Officer Pittman decided to go back too, but one woman begged him not to sacrifice their lives in a useless attempt to try and save others. Pittman gave in, and Boat 5, carrying 40 out of 65, spent the next hour heaving gently in the calm Atlantic swell, while the occupants listened to the swimmers just 300 yards away. Boat 2 was also 60% full and did nothing. Others felt differently, including brave and spirited Molly Brown, who later inspired the play The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Her boat, number 6, with just 28 occupants out of a possible 65, went no closer, however, as Quartermaster Hitchens painted a vivid picture of swimmers grappling at the boat, which would be swamped and capsized. Fireman Henderson in boat 1, 12 occupants out of a possible 40, said they should go back, but Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon, about as far from Henderson in terms of social class as can be imagined, said he didn't think they should try for fear of swamping, so the boat drifted aimlessly. Only 13 people out of over 1,500 in the water were picked up by the 18 boats. Other survivors were picked up simply due to the close proximity of the boats. Why did trained men react so differently? And what about the passengers who survived in the boats? It is, of course, easy to say that they should have turned back, especially with the fact that some of the women would have known that it was their husbands screaming for help. But who could really blame them? At some point, one's own life becomes the most important thing to the vast majority of people, and the very real fear of suction as the boat went down, and swamping as the desperate clung to life, and anything else they could hold on to, kept them at a distance. As the cries died away, the night grew strangely peaceful. Eva Hart remembers that even as a seven-year-old, once the lights had gone out, the ship had gone, the cries had stopped, and all that was left was the blackness of the night, she felt that the world was, at that moment, standing still. The first drama had finished, but the shock, confusion and excitement had not yet sunk in. A curious calm came over people, but loneliness also now set in. One passenger watched the shooting stars and thought of the insignificance of the rockets in comparison. Slowly life in the boats picked up, Fourth Officer Boxall firing off green flares from Boat 2 that seemed to bring people out of their trance and give them some cheer. Some thought the flares came from rescue ships and the boats hailed each other in the dark while some drifted apart. With no compasses they had no idea where to go. Passenger Lawrence Beasley, trying to calm a crying baby, discovered that he and the lady holding the baby had close mutual friends in Ireland. Touchingly, Mrs Astor lent her shawl to a steerage woman to comfort her little daughter who was whimpering in the cold. She was thanked in Swedish. As if the sinking wasn't strange and surreal enough, now there was a curious phenomenon of the richest and poorest sharing lifeboats, a strange quirk of fate having brought them to a physical proximity that was disallowed by ship segregation and which would never have happened in regular life. They now had a common purpose to their actions, the age-old need for survival. Their definitions of the word would have been remarkably different in civilian life, but the sinking had for a short time almost equalised them, as it had the 1500s scrambling in the freezing water after the sinking. It was cold in the boats, one lady so cold that Pittman wrapped a sail around her. A stoker's teeth chattered, and another man looked so cold that he reminded the other passengers of a snowman. A woman collapsed, and in number 13, an elderly lady offered an extra coat to a man wearing only a thin jumper, but he refused and said it should go to a young Irish girl instead. There were a number of Lady Oarsmen, the wealthy Mrs John B. Thayer in boat four, rowing for five hours in water up to her shins. In boat six, Mrs Brown organised the women two to an oar, propelling the boat three or four miles in a hopeless effort 
to overtake the light that twinkled on the horizon most of the night. As the night wore on, the early composure began to give way. Mrs Charles Hayes in boat three, continually hailing the boats that came near, repeating over and over, Charles Hayes, are you there? An Italian woman in boat eight screamed for her husband, while the Countess of Rothis sat next to the signora, rowing and trying to cheer her up. Squabbling broke out, often about trifles. One woman drove the others mad by constantly setting off an alarm clock. Many arguments revolved around smoking, and some women begged men to stop. This was, of course, decades before Edward Bernays, double nephew of Sigmund Freud, used his famous uncle's teachings for commercial purposes, one of which was to create generations of female smokers through a stage event where deputants held up cigarettes as torches of freedom. Back in the sparsely filled boat one, Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon gave Fireman Hendrickson a good cigar while his wife was too sick to care, her head down and vomiting away the night. With only twelve in the boat, any squabbles were amplified. Fireman Pusey bemoaned the loss of his kit and his pay, telling Sir Cosmo that the latter could at least replace everything he'd lost. Sir Cosmo gave him five pounds to start a new kit, but the Duff Gordon's monopoly of the boat and refusal to row back made the fiver seem somewhat like a payoff. When Lady Duff Gordon reassembled everyone for a group photo later, the others looked a lot like the Duff Gordon's personal crew, something the socialites found it hard to live down for a few years. In boat six, Major Pouchin, used to giving orders, tried to take command of the boat, but Quartermaster Hitchens had other ideas, telling Pouchin that his role was to row and keep quiet. Just before the sinking, he'd urged the women in this boat to row harder, worried about the dreaded suction from the ship. The women had shouted back at him and the night echoed with bitter repartee. The light on the horizon wouldn't be reached and they were without water, food, compass or charts, hundreds of miles from land and without a clue which direction they were heading. Hitchens ordered them to drift, but Mrs Brown urged them to keep rowing just to keep warm. In the Battle of Wills, Mrs Brown took the spoils and Hitchens was rendered silent. Other society ladies, who had never lifted a finger in their lives, rowed in other boats, including Mrs Astor in boat four, whose husband had been the richest man on the ship. As they weren't rowing back to pick up survivors, where exactly they rowed is open to question. Even in collapsible B, as the men clung on for dear life, there was time for bickering. Colonel Gracie's teeth were chattering and his hair frozen stiff, but when he asked a man if he could borrow his cap, he was refused. Nerves were frayed on this boat as the air was leaking out from under the hull, and every minute it sunk a little lower in the water. The sea occasionally washed over the keel, and one impulsive move might pitch everyone into the sea. An air of horror and desperation hung over everything. They needed cool leadership, and the deep, rich voice of Second Officer Lightoller piped up and took command. Organised action was required and he got all 30 men to stand arranged in a double column facing the bow and had them lean to counteract the swell. Lightoller spotted second wireless operator Bride and was told that the Baltic, Olympic and Carpathia were all on their way and they searched the horizon for signs of anything to bolster their sagging spirits. Slowly the night passed and as dawn broke a breeze sprang up, the sea grew choppy Bitter waves splashed up into the boat and the spray stabbed their bodies and blinded their eyes. One man and another rolled off the stern and disappeared from sight. The rest fell silent, completely absorbed in the battle to stay alive. The chief baker, Charles Joffin, had found an original way to stay alive. When the caller come to get to the boat deck soon after midnight, he'd realised the need for provisions and with his 30 men ransacked the ship's supplies of all bread, over 100 loaves in all. He then retired to his cabin on E-deck for a nip of whisky. 
He later hauled reluctant women up and threw them into the boat and had refused a place in boat 10 as skipper because he didn't think it was right. He went back for more drinks, barely noticing the water reaching the top of his shoes. Around 1.45am he returned to the boat deck and began throwing deck chairs from B deck, pitching 50 overboard, then retired to the A deck pantry at 2.10am, this time quenching his thirst with water. He'd reached the well deck as Titanic gave a sickening twist to port, throwing most of the people into a huge heap along the port rail. Joffin, alert but relaxed, displayed a remarkable equilibrium as the stern rose higher, corkscrewing to port. The deck was listing too deeply to stand on and he worked his way up the side of the ship, holding on to the starboard rail until he reached the poop deck, the partial deck above the main one and at the back of the ship. He stood on the stern end of the ship, which had risen 150 feet above the water, and as the sea closed over the stern, he stepped off into the water, not even getting his head wet. He paddled off, hardly bothered by the cold, and at 4am discovered boat B. Not able to get on, he trod water until a friend from the kitchen helped him on, still thoroughly insulated. That does seem to be a quite an unbelievable story. And in the film, A Night to Remember, there are a couple of things I wanted to point out. Once again, I think it's a great film, and I'm, I'm just picking holes for the sake of accuracy, but they give the impression really that he just drunk a lot of whiskey and somehow survived. Uh, it is quite incredible that he survived until four o'clock before getting onto a boat because that's an hour and 40 minutes after the boat sank. The other thing in A Night to Remember, they do portray Lightoller, played by Kenneth Moore, organising everyone and recognising Harold Bride from the wireless shack. But uh, there is a scene there where they're quite calmly sitting on top of the collapsible boat, reflecting on what's happened. It's just right at the end of that film. Whereas in reality, I mean, you cannot even imagine how cold and freezing and how in shock their bodies must have been. And it's pretty much a miracle that they survived. And again, you know, Lightoller deserves some credit for the the steel that he showed, as well as the leadership qualities that I guess he would have had anyway from being a senior member of the ship. So carrying on. All eyes now scanned the southeast horizon. At 3.30am they saw a distant flash and heard a far-off boom. A stoker in boat 13, almost unconscious from the cold, suddenly bolted up, recognising the noise as a cannon. Soon lights began to appear and a big steamer emerged like an apparition, firing reassuring rockets to show that help was on the way. Captain Rostron on the Carpathia had done everything he could until the initial distress call had come through, but after that had come the waiting. Extra lookouts were there, all straining for any sign of ice or the Titanic, but there was just the glassy sea, the blazing stars and the sharp, clear, empty horizon. By 2.35am all was ready and suddenly Rostron noticed a green flare. All on the bridge thought it must be from the great ship, still afloat. Perhaps they'd be on time after all. At 2.45am a glistening berg was spotted, lighted by the mirrored light of a star. Then there were more. The Carpathia drove on, never slackening, twisting and turning and dodging icebergs on all sides. On and on they surged as the men breathlessly watched for the next berg and spotted more green flares in the distance from time to time. The Carpathia was firing rockets every 15 minutes and everyone on the ship was ready and wild with excitement. A sailor later remarked that, quote, the old boat was as excited as any of us. However, Rostron's heart was sinking at 3.45am as they drew near the spot without a sign of her. At 4am they reached the spot and the ship was stopped. Another green flare blazed up, the flickering light showing the outline of a lifeboat about 300 yards away. 
In boat B, they let out a yelp of joy. In boat three, newspaper and a lady's straw hat were burned as signals. Others dipped handkerchiefs in kerosene and lit them. And Boxall burned a last green flare in boat two. Cheers and yells rang out, and the dawn seemed to brighten in mauve and coral colours. The sky blazed with thrilling warm shades of pink and gold. To the north and west, about five miles away, stretched a flat, unbroken field of ice as far as the eye could see. The sight was so astonishing that those Carpathia passengers who'd slept through everything until now couldn't grasp it at all, though some snapped pictures of history as they took photos of the lifeboats approaching. Rostron restarted the engines and headed for the light, but an instant later a huge iceberg loomed ahead and he had to swerve it. As he edged towards the lifeboats, the sea grew choppy and a voice from the dark hailed him. We have only one seaman and can't work very well. It was 4th Officer Boxall in boat two. Next to him, a lady in near hysterics cried out, The Titanic has gone down with everyone on board, and was sharply told by Boxall to shut up. On the Carpathia, all eyes were on the lifeboat bobbing towards the gangway, and they saw pale, strained faces and heard only a baby wailing in the boat. Lines were quickly dropped and at 4.10am the first boat was picked up and Miss Elizabeth Allen climbed slowly up the swinging ladder and tumbled into the arms of Persa Brown, thus putting herself into history as the first person saved from the Titanic. Although he instinctively knew it already, Rostron confirmed with the shivering boxel on the bridge that the Titanic had gone down. Day was breaking now and other lifeboats could be seen all around, scattered over a four-mile area. In the grey light of dawn, on what could be termed the first day of the new sceptical, realistic modern age, the boats were hard to distinguish from scores of small icebergs that covered the sea next to three or four towering monsters of 150 to 200 feet high. Life started to stir on the Californian with the coming of the dawn on Monday, April 15, 1912. Second Officer Stone brought his relief Chief Officer Stewart, up to date about the strange boat with its eight rockets, its disappearance and the other rockets they'd observed at 3.40am that clearly came from somewhere else. At 4.30am, Stewart woke Captain Lord and repeated the story, the captain pulling on clothes and pondering how to work out of the ice field and get on to Boston. Lord didn't bother checking on the new ship to the south, which wasn't sending any signals, but Stone was moved to wake wireless operator Evans at 5.40am to tell him. Evans, who turned in for the night just before midnight, soon after being rebuked by Phillips on the Titanic for bothering him with ice messages, fumbled for the headlines in the half-light of day and tuned in. Two minutes later, after Evans had heard what happened, Stuart rocketed up the bridge with the shattering news that the Titanic had struck an iceberg and sank. So in Waterlord's book, he does talk of some kind of new dawn. And um, if we think of this in a more uh, spiritual sense let's say or um, existential sense it is quite possible to believe that the passengers who survived this once they got over the initial shock perhaps would have felt that their lives were beginning again or perhaps even that the world was about to begin again and as we said you know this new what was it skeptical realistic modern age again it's about learning so you learn to be skeptical being skeptical or even being cynical isn't always a bad thing as we've explored, in fact, on this podcast, on episode two. But um, I did hear one testimony from a passenger who had actually not slept the whole night on the lifeboat, and I think he had a micro-sleep or a a two-minute nap or five minutes, whatever it was. And anyone who has 
a nap, even if it is just a few minutes, knows how refreshing it can feel and how you can almost feel like it is a new day when you wake up. And he said he felt like this. He suddenly felt um, somewhat energised. And of course, there was a lot of adrenaline involved. And he'd actually woken up. It was either shortly before or shortly after they'd realised that the Carpathia, although they didn't know it was a Carpathia, the rescue ship was coming towards them. So there was some sense of a new dawn. At this point, it needs to be mentioned what was happening back in everyday civilian life, far from the drama on the sea. As we have already seen, the messages that had come from Titanic following the iceberg collision had been met with disbelief by the other ships, and the astonishing news of the CQD was also at this time filtering back to shore via Cape Race. In the city room of the New York Times, the managing editor of the paper studied the wireless messages and made a flurry of phone calls. On a hunch that would make his paper famous, he went out on a limb and changed the morning headlines to reflect the news that the Titanic had collided with an iceberg and started to sink by the head at midnight. The next day, the Times was the lone voice predicting the worst. In America, radio was the new toy and without restrictions, so anyone who could put together a set could get on the waves and be informed as best they could from the often faint messages coming through. One message questioning who'd been saved on the ship got garbled to all Titanic passengers saved. Since even today there is slight dispute over the total number of passengers, how many were saved and how many lost, it's not hard to imagine the confusion of that first day. In the New York offices of the White Star Line, however, unquestioning optimism reigned. Vice President Philip Franklin was accosted by reporters on Monday morning, but he assured them that inconvenience was the worst that the passengers had faced. Inaccurate news that the passengers were being towed to Halifax led to White Star sending trains to meet them, which were quickly turned back when it was established that the Carpathia had the survivors of the sinking. The gravity of the damage to the Titanic is apparent, but the important point is that she did not sink. Man is both the weakest and the most formidable creature on earth, and his brain has within it the spirit of the divine. He overcomes natural obstacles by thought, which is incomparably the greatest force in the universe. So wrote the Wall Street Journal. By mid-afternoon, however, on Monday, April 15th, the tone had changed. On the roof of Wanamaker's department store in New York, there was a wireless station which had been set up purely for the amusement of its customers. A young man called David Sarnoff, who later achieved fame through RCA, Radio Corporation of America, and became a pioneer of radio and television, was one of the first to get the faint but clear message from the Olympic that Titanic had founded with a huge loss of life. Once the news had been passed on, it was as if Bedlam had been let loose. Reporters besieged the White Star's office, and though Philip Franklin first talked only of rumours and the hope that all would be saved, by midnight he openly wept, as the truth could no longer be denied. I thought her unsinkable based on the best advice. I do not understand it, said Franklin. This kind of disbelief would continue for days, weeks, months and even years. What they saw from the boats as they approached the Carpathia looked like a picture from a child's book about the Arctic. The sun was edging over the horizon and the ice sparkled in its first long rays. The bergs looked dazzling white, pink, mauve or deep blue depending on how the rays hit them and how the shadows fell. The sea was now bright blue and little chunks of ice some no bigger than a man's fist, bobbed in the choppy water. Overhead, the eastern sky was gold and blue, promising a lovely day. The shadows of night lingered in the west, and a passenger remembered looking at the morning star, 
which continued to shine long after the others had faded. Near the horizon, a thin, pale crescent moon appeared. The boats started to try and outrun each other to reach the Carpathia, and some in them began singing. There were organised cheers while others remained silent, stunned by the sinking or overwhelmed by relief. On Collapsible B, Lightoller, Bride, Gracie and the rest were too busy trying to stay afloat and alive to cheer. Stirred by the morning breeze, the waves now washed over the boat and rocked it back and forth, each motion letting air escape and sinking the keel a little lower into the water. Under Lightoller's direction, the men had shifted their weight back and forth, but after an hour had become so exhausted that even the sight of the rescue ship meant little to them. The Carpathia had stopped four miles away, and they wondered how long they could last until they were spotted. Suddenly, as the light spread over the sea, they saw a new hope. Boats 4, 10, 12 and D were 800 yards away, strung together in a line. Lightoller fished an officer's whistle out of his pocket and blew a shrill blast. In number 12, the 20 men were faintly seen, and boats 12 and 4 made their way towards the officer, slow going despite Lightoller's encouragement. Finally, the two boats arrived, but barely in time. Boat B was now so delicately balanced that the wash from boat 4 almost swept everybody off. Lightoller cautioned the men not to scramble, but the boat made a sickening roll as each man made the jump. It was about 6.30 when Lightoller finally got boat 12 off towards the Carpathia. Boat 14, containing low, spent an hour trying to pick up survivors and only found four. Some of the boats got away from each other. The swamped collapsible A contained only 12 out of 30 who'd first swum to it, and it was abandoned after the passengers had been transferred. One by one, the boats crept up to the Carpathia, the process starting at 4.10 and lasting over four hours. Ismay stumbled aboard around 6.30, mumbling, I'm Ismay, and trembling. He refused food and drink, but requested a private room so he could be alone, the beginning of a self-imposed exile from active life. Within a year he'd retired from the White Star Line and purchased a large estate on the west coast of Ireland, where he remained until his death in 1937. By 8.15 all the boats were in except number 12, still several hundred yards away and barely moving. The breeze grew stiff and the sea grew rougher now containing 75 people and the only lifeboat that could ever be said to have been filled to capacity at any point during the disaster, Lytola nursed it along and they got there at 8.30am as the crowd at the Carpathia's rail watched breathlessly. Lytola and Officer Wilde had originally launched the boat, then containing 30 people, from the Titanic seven hours earlier. Upon arrival on the Carpathia, Harold Bride immediately collapsed. By now the Californian was standing by and agreed to search the scene, while the Carpathia made for New York. The thorough Rostron had one last look for survivors and found few traces of the great ship at her grave, just patches of cork, chairs, palisters, cushions, lifeboats and one body. A service was arranged in the main lounge where those present gave thanks for the living and paid their respects to the lost. At 8.50 Rostron was satisfied there couldn't possibly be another person alive in the water and ordered full steam ahead for New York carrying 712 passengers. Those who made it to the Carpathia found blankets piled to the ceiling, brandy and hot coffee, an officer to meet each survivor, and eventually time to process and ponder their ordeal and the horrors they'd witnessed. The priority for the weak, bone-chilled survivors was, of course, to try and locate missing loved ones, and 12-year-old Ruth Becker searched for four frantic hours before finally being reunited with her mother and two younger siblings, Alas, a rare story of successful reunion. 
On the crowded Carpathia, people slept on floors and tables, and the passengers were later commended for many acts of kindness to those who came from the Titanic, many lending or giving away items such as toothbrushes and clothes, and offering their cabins without a murmur. Some passengers started getting on with their lives quickly, for others it took longer. Ismay, who had been in need of sedation when he'd arrived, remained sequestered in the doctor's cabin, still trembling and shot with opiates, not appearing to eat, drink, nor see anyone. 17-year-old Jack Thayer sipped brandy and realised it was his first ever drink of hard liquor. Far below, the Carpathia's engines hummed with a swift, soothing rhythm. Far above, the wind whistled through the rigging. Some wonderful poetic language, and I'm not taking credit for that. As I said, um, a lot of this comes from Waterlord's book, A Night to Remember. I honestly can't remember which bits are him and which bits are me, but... uh, I made a reference earlier about the smoking to Edward Bernays, if that's a name you've never heard of, B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. I very much recommend you look into him and how he got women smoking. So just want to make a quick comment. Before I read the book and the other books about the Titanic, I'd always imagined that the boats would have been very close to each other and that it wouldn't have taken too long to get them on the rescue ship Carpathia. But as you heard, I mean, from the moment they actually saw the ship, to the time they left it was over five hours in fact as we heard getting them on the ship originally itself was just four or four and a half hours so it's quite amazing to think of the scene but as i said earlier you know the human spirit carried most of them through the night on the lifeboats and um, obviously first light of the day and the rescue ship would have lifted them enough to be able to hang on and go through yet another ordeal of four hours rounding up the ships getting them together and getting the passengers on the Carpathia quite incredible thing I was saying earlier about a new dawn of course when the sun came up that next morning that must have been the moment when anyone who was thinking that way would have started to believe in a new day and a new chapter in their life back in Belfast those from Harland and Wolfe who built the ship were stunned by the news as were those in Southampton who contributed most to the crew 549 men from Southampton were lost, leaving widows and fatherless children. The White Star office there was also besieged, but details were unclear and confusion reigned. Back in New York, the sinking was now officially accepted, though without the precise details. This didn't stop headlines being made about details of the sinking, however. The American press had already scapegoated and pilloried Ismay before he'd even arrived back on the Carpathia, once his survival had been made official. The rescue ship was offering no news to those awaiting it in New York, even refusing a telegram from President Taft pleading for news of his military aide, Archibald Butt. Captain Rostron elected instead to save the wireless for official traffic and private messages from survivors, relayed by Operator Cottam with help from his Titanic counterpart, Harold Bride, once he'd recovered. It would be three and a half days after the first reports before the wait for real news ended. And just a quick word also about the passengers on the Carpathia. Again, this testimony from someone that I remember from a few years ago. Unfortunately, I don't remember their name. He said two very interesting things about his time on the Carpathia. First of all, he said that when he arrived on the ship, completely exhausted, as you can imagine, he was immediately given either brandy or whiskey and uh, coffee. And he said that he uh, was given also some blankets and he found a bench on the ship and immediately just uh, crushed out as we'd say in modern language and he was honest enough to say that he had probably the greatest sleep of his life now 
this is an interesting point because this person in question did say that they were not overly emotional and quite a pragmatic person. And he said that, you know, he did have nightmares a week after or a couple of weeks after and had a recurring dream four or five times, but that the shock didn't immediately hit him. And so he was just so relieved to be able to sleep and settled into this uh, very, very deep sleep and was untroubled by dreams or nightmares that particular night or day, in fact, because it was early in the morning. The other interesting thing that another survivor said was that there were a few people on the Carpathia talking about what had happened on the Titanic and were already disagreeing, which is a very interesting thing. You know, we're not saying for a second that any of these people are lying. It's just a thing. Policemen will tell you that when people are giving details of road accidents, one person will say it was a red car, the other one will say, no, it was a green car, and they're both completely convinced. And, you know, memory is a somewhat unreliable and uh, fragile thing at times. Let's continue. On the evening of Thursday, 18th of April, the Carpathia approached New York City Harbour. As she edged towards Pier 54, 30,000 people lined the docks and the streets of Battery Park in the waterfront rain. The harbour had probably never witnessed something as emotional and significant as the arrival of the rescue ship. As the Carpathia steamed up the North River, tugs chugged beside her, full of reporters shouting questions and money offers through megaphones. At 8.37pm, she reached the pier and began unloading the Titanic's lifeboats, which prompted gasps of emotion in the realisation that these tiny craft were all that remained of the world's largest liner. At 9.35pm, the first survivors tumbled off the ship to be met by reporters begging for a story. One reporter had got on the Carpathia and been promptly decked by one of the officers on the ship. Many of the survivors, such as Georgetta Dean, whose daughter Melvina would eventually be the final living survivor, now had children to raise alone in a strange new land. Many steerage survivors had the added confusion of not speaking the mother tongue. Some locals offered them dollar bills, yet more examples of human decency in dark moments. On the same day, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, the so-called City of Sorrow, the cable ship Mackie Bennett, manned by an all-volunteer crew and loaded with a hundred coffins, set off on the macabre journey to search for bodies which had drifted away from the site of the Titanic's foundering and were being kept afloat by the life jackets that they wore. Over 300 bodies were found, ranging from the poorest immigrants to John Jacob Astor. The ship had limited embalming supplies, so severely damaged or unidentifiable bodies were committed to the deep at a depth of two miles, each burial preceded by the appropriate words. Remnants of the ship also remained, such as deck chairs and panelling from the lounge, the wood from which was carved into a cribbage board by a crewman of the Mackie Bennett. The last body was found in June by a German steamer, the victim a table steward from the dining saloon. 356 bodies were found in all, but they didn't include famous names such as Benjamin Guggenheim and Captain Edward J. Smith, of whom all manner of stories would be recounted regarding his actions and whereabouts after the sinking. Both Smith and First Officer Murdoch were involved in rumours of an officer shooting himself in the head, an event that may or may not have taken place. Testimonies from survivors were improved by reporters and all manner of stories began to circulate, the public caught up in the excitement and not caring about the truth of the stories. As the famous Hollywood film director John Ford said, when the legend becomes fact print the legend. The public were overwhelmed and King George of England and President Taft exchanged condolences. 
The official numbers, once they were in, were rather damning in terms of enormous and undeniable class discrepancies. 1,522 passengers and crew had been lost, and among the survivors, the women and children first policy that had seemed to be the way of it didn't appear to square with the loss rate of third-class children being higher than that of first-class men. Though denied by the White Star Line, it became clear that the steerage passengers were to a great extent disregarded and forgotten. Their quarters were the lowest on the ship and they'd struggled to get up top when the lifeboat started to be loaded. In the subsequent inquiries and survivor testimonies, it emerged that some of the crew had in fact barred the way to the boat deck for third-class passengers, symbolically keeping them down or opened the gates without telling anyone. Some had been generously helped by passengers to get up to the deck, but most were left to fend for themselves. Some steerage met the challenge with Enterprise, crawling along the crane from the well deck aft, but most milled helplessly around their quarters, forgotten and soon to be lost forever. Just before the ship sank, Lightoller and others had been sure all the women had been seen off in lifeboats when they suddenly saw dozens of steerage women running towards the boats. Of the casualties, only four of 143 first-class women had died, three of those choosing to remain on the ship, 15 of 93 second-class women and 81 of 179 steerage. Only one child of 29 in first and second class had perished, while shockingly, 53 out of 76 steerage children had been lost. Nobody seemed to care about third class even after the disaster, including the press, who voraciously searched for news elsewhere, and the official inquiries. Only two out of 43 survivor accounts in the New York Herald came from third class passengers. Congress's detailed investigation concerned itself with what an iceberg was made of, Ice, said 5th Officer Lowe, but only talked to three steerage passengers and didn't follow up on their testimony of being kept from going on the boat deck. No hush-up was required since there seemed no interest. At the British inquiry, the official representative of third-class passengers saw no discrimination and a clean bill of health was given to the system that had failed the steerage passengers. However, no third-class passenger testified and the only surviving steward stationed in steerage freely conceded that the men were kept below decks as late as 1.15am. The steerage passengers seemed to expect this and silently accept it, even as the ship was sinking. Regarding the investigations, since a British ship owned by an American company had been lost, two inquiries either side of the Atlantic were set up. The American Senate hearing started on April 19th in a ballroom at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and were at the same time theatre, psychodrama and also a social event. J. Bruce Ismay denied trying to influence Captain Smith regarding the speed of the ship and testified that he'd instinctively hopped into a lifeboat that was about to leave without being full. Ismay performed well, though the press sought to leap on and exaggerate any signs of weakness and one paper listed the lost on one side of a page, citing a handful of illustrious passengers and the saved on the other side with the sole name of Ismay. Ismay stated that, My conscience is clear. Eighty witnesses testified at the month-long hearings and the maverick senator William Alden Smith, who'd called for the hearings, sought to sue White Star for negligence but found that no official violation of written law could be found so no steerage passengers could be compensated at this time. Passengers and crew with complaints against the White Star Line would have to wait a lot longer for the meagre reparations handed out. The formula of limited liability meant that the damage money would be a proportion of what had been saved in this case a mere 20 lifeboats. The figure White Star finally negotiated with the lawyers, 
$664,000 to American claimants and $3.5 million to British was clearly higher than the formula demanded, but still a fraction of what had been lost in terms of life and property. So those figures really are mind-boggling. I mean, that's $4 million in 1912 dollars. I haven't done a calculation of what that is in today's money, but it's a staggering amount and still a fraction of what had been lost. After the New York hearings, the British crew headed home for Plymouth, where they'd been summoned to testify at the British inquiry, presided over by the distinguished Lord Mersey. Neither inquiry fixed blame on the IMM, the White Star Line, or its employees, but happily they both made clear the need for regulatory changes that still protect seafarers to this day. Never again would men fail to heed ice warnings and fling a ship into an ice field, putting all their trust in a few thousand tonnes of steel and rivets. From now, Atlantic liners took icebergs seriously and steered clear or slowed down. Nobody believed any longer in the idea of an unsinkable ship, and icebergs would be subject to the International Ice Patrol, a service that goes through the North Atlantic lanes and blows up icebergs before they become a hazard to navigation. Liners now had a 24-hour radio watch, so never again could the world fall apart while a wireless operator lay sleeping off duty just 20 miles away. Regarding lifeboats, the outdated safety regulations that Titanic had adhered to, and in fact exceeded, having capacity for 1,178 people instead of the 962 required, the formula based on cubic feet, were done away with. The new formula was simple, lifeboats for all, and they would not be filled according to class. So these are the changes that I was talking about earlier, very, very positive changes, and uh, ones that, as far as I know, have always been adhered to. Even more than the great ship, her cargo, and the lives of 1,500 people, a lot more vanished on the fateful night. Since the disaster, class distinctions in this situation have been drastically reduced, or some perhaps rather optimistically say eliminated. As happily often happens in the face of disaster, people rushed to help, and in this case relief agencies were set up worldwide to help widows, orphans and penniless steerage survivors who finally received recognition. The seeds of a social conscience were sown by what is often required for this to happen, for humans to see past their own destinies and egos and tend to those more needy than themselves. However, disasters also need scapegoats, and as well as the new safety procedures, the inquiries also agreed on the guilty party. Although Ismay had been, quote, drawn and quartered by some elements of the press, the accepted villain was actually named by Ernest Gill, a crewman on the Californian. He offered an account of Captain Lord's disregard of the rockets and criminal negligence, claims that Lord scoffed at. It should be said that crewmen on very low wages were offered a year's wages or more for a story which could later be embellished by a skilled newspaper man. Like his mate, Lord was haunted by the fallout for the rest of his life, maintaining that a third mystery ship had been between the Californian and Titanic before steaming away, which accounted for Lord and the Californian's lack of action on the fateful night. When pressed by Lord Mersey himself at the British inquiry, Lord had said that, quote, a ship in distress does not steam away from you. His protests fell on deaf ears, and he didn't receive the official exoneration afforded to Ismay and Captain Smith, instead made the official scapegoat for the whole disaster. Lord was fired by the Leyland Line just four months after the sinking, his reputation in ruins. He kept quiet for many years, but was upset by his portrayal in the 1958 film A Night to Remember, where he was depicted as sleeping in his cabin while hundreds were dying a short distance away, and was reinvigorated in his determination to clear his name. 
Lord went to see a man called Harrison, who was the General Secretary of the Mercantile Marine Service Organisation, of which Lord had been a member for 60 years. Lord explained that he'd been wrongly accused of allowing 1,500 people to die, and when Harrison took out the old files and examined them, he became convinced that Lord had a case. Who was the ship between the 20 miles separating the Titanic and the Californian? Speculation said that it was a Norwegian whaler called the Samson, which was illegally involved in the seal hunting trade and had steamed away when finding herself between the two boats, but it was later proved that the boat was in an Icelandic port at the time of the disaster. Lord died in 1962, a few months shy of the 50th anniversary of the disaster and a full 30 years before his case was suddenly reopened. The findings were mixed, and although no question of murder was concluded, the suggestion of negligence was there to further torment Lord's family and failed to restore his tarnished reputation. First Class and the well-known would never have it so good as they had back in 1912. At that time there were no movie, radio or television celebrities, so it was the prominent social figures who the public depended on for the vicarious glamour that enriches drab lives. When the Titanic sailed, the New York Times listed the prominent passengers on the front page, and after the sinking, John Jacob Astor's loss was given a prominent two-page spread. He'd thought nothing of paying $800 for a lace jacket from a dealer on deck. The wealthy Ryersons had 16 trunks of luggage. The 190 first-class families were attended to by 23 handmaids, 8 valets and assorted nurses and governesses, not to mention all the stewards and stewardesses attending to their every need. In New York, the rich survivors were met by doctors, nurses, secretaries, special trains and private cars. As stated earlier, a deluxe suite on the Titanic with its private promenade deck, one of which J.P. Morgan was due to sail in before his late cancellation, went for as much as 4350 $1912. To put this in perspective, second wireless operator Harold Bride, on $20 a month, would have had to have worked for 18 years to make one trip in this style. The world of the Edwardian rich was close and intimate, and they would bump into each other at the pyramids, the cow's regatta, or the springs at Baden-Baden, and their mutual idea had been to take the maiden trip on the Titanic. John Jacob Astor had learned of the damage to the ship from Captain Smith before the general alarm. The stewards and waiters working on the ship had often served the same elites and knew how they liked things done. Even the prosperous but relatively modest, by Astor standards at least, Thomas Andrews was helped to dress. The superiority of Anglo-Saxon courage was also loudly proclaimed on the Titanic, and the stowaways, those who jumped from the deck before the sinking, were all, quote, foreigners. At the inquiry, some Italians were presumed to have rushed the boats, the word being used to mean coward, requiring the Italian ambassador to demand an apology. The stoker who attacked Phillips was described as a negro for effect. At the same time, some of the nobility of some of the men also disappeared along with the general chivalry of the time, tempered still by the gradual rise of feminism. Today, love and loyalty between families still exists, but little personal touches like going to the White Star Line in person, rather than phoning to check on loved ones, seem to have disappeared with the times. The disaster also destroyed the confidence of the age in the feeling that an answer had been found to a civilised, orderly life. For the past hundred years there had been no war and a steady rise of technology and industry, and life was all right. The Titanic woke them up and gave technology and man's greatest achievement a terrible blow, shown to be ever so fragile beneath the grandeur on its very first trip. The Titanic disaster had equalised everyone in the water, and if wealth did no good then did it mean anything the rest of the time? 
Ministers preached that, quote, the Titanic was a heaven-sent lesson to awaken people from their complacency. The lesson appeared to work, but more was required to press home the point. Two years after the sinking, the technology that was supposed to improve mankind's life in an unbroken continuum of progress that would eventually lead to perfection was instead used in an exercise of mass destruction of human life in the First World War, the fallout from which was a large contributing factor towards an even greater act of mutual massacre 20 years later. The introduction of income tax in 1913 had already struck a blow to the Edwardian rich, whose lifestyle had been so on show on the Titanic, and then came the control of money by private interests through the Federal Reserve. The uneasy era had started, and the 20th century took a hammering. For 75 years, Titanic never left popular culture, and many secretly dreamed of finding the wreck, which lay nearly three miles down. Dr Robert Ballard of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, was a man chosen by fate to scale the underwater Mount Everest to make contact again with the great ship in a joint US-French expedition which was years in the making. The French had developed a piece of sonar technology to search the area around where the lifeboats had been picked up and although the first search had yielded nothing, it had narrowed things down by showing them a large area where the wreck wasn't to be found. A month later, using Ballard's own Argo imaging system, a remote-controlled underwater video system, the magic moment finally came. The days had passed with endless, monotonous footage of the seafloor and a feeling that a third expedition would be needed. However, in the early hours of Sunday, September 1st, 1985, those working the graveyard shift suddenly noticed anomalies in the otherwise smooth ocean floor. At first it was pockmarks that looked like small craters, then debris, a boiler and the hull. Cheers went up, though they turned to an uncomfortable feeling when someone pointed out that the time was approximately 2.20am, the hour that the ship had sunk. Ballard realised he'd come upon a graveyard, a place of lost souls. He would return a year later with well-advanced technology that could explore the wreck in close-up. After a two and a half hour descent, Ballard could just make out a wall of steel that seemed endless. As the team's lights hit the wall, it was blazoned in colour and finally seemed real beyond the legend that had been building for over 70 years since the first second after it had gone down. The porthole suddenly seemed like eyes looking back, perhaps even disapprovingly, at the voyeuristic explorers. It was clear that the bow had plunged two and a half miles in under ten minutes ploughing into the silt and forever hiding the gash that the iceberg had cut into her side. The stern had broken off and evened out briefly, which had led those still on it at the time to believe that it might hold, before it gave way and made its own plunge. On the ocean floor, the stern, swept relatively far from the bow, looked in 1985 like it had been hit by a nuclear blast. Ballard reasoned that the bow being full of water at the time of the sinking had made it pressure compensated, meaning that there was no air left in it. The stern, however, had held on to its air, causing a tremendous build-up of pressure that was released in an implosion on the way down. A mile of debris was scattered around between the bow and stern, like salt from a shaker. At one point they saw a smiling face appear, which was the head of a painted ceramic doll from the ship, perfectly preserved. Incredibly, there were still a variety of small creatures going about their day in the blackness of the ocean depths some 3,800 metres down, where water pressure is 11,000 pounds per square inch, something comparable to a single person supporting the weight of 30 Boeing 747s. 
The human bodies have been quickly consumed, of course, but due to the tannic acid used in the production of leather items, they, like the ceramic items, were perfectly preserved. On the stern, Ballard placed a bronze plaque given to him by survivor Eva Hart in memory of her father, and the crew wept. So one can only imagine, really, the feeling as they approached it. Rather like perhaps surviving the Titanic itself, there's a mixture of excitement and then guilt, I guess, or um, in the case of Ballard and his colleagues, let's say a moment, a humbling moment, as they realised that the time was approximately the same as the time that the ship had gone down. Another thing to reflect on is, of course, the mixture of uh, great generosity shown to some of the poorer people who, as we said, were arriving in the new world, often with the breadwinner of the family dead and uh, in a strange land, perhaps not speaking the language. So, as we heard, relief agencies were set up. That was a nice part. But, of course, then there's also some of the uh, grislier aspects of the newspaper business, the desperation for a story and and the competitiveness there. Ballard had originally intended to keep the location of the wreck a secret so as to stop others disturbing the grave, but naturally this proved impossible for an insatiable world. Emotional debates raged among historians, oceanographers and survivors about whether Titanic's treasures should be salvaged, akin to grave robbing in some survivors' eyes, or left in peace. In 1994, after an extended court battle, exclusive salvage rights were given to RMS Titanic Inc., The architects found, which included unmailed postcards, a passenger's leather bag last opened in 1912 and a music stand that may have been used as the band played on right to the end, were painstakingly preserved and restored, then put on display and are now viewed in various sites. The tastefulness of the displays and treatment of the items contrasts with a programme called Return to the Titanic, which was broadcast in 1987. It was in the main an interesting programme that featured several artefacts recovered from the ship, but host Telly Savalas, broadcasting live in Paris, was also charged to warm the audience up before each of the numerous commercial breaks with a continual build-up to the climax of the programme, where a safe would be opened containing the jewels of the Edwardian rich that went down with the ship. No comment is even required regarding the fictional film Raise the Titanic, based on a Clive Cussler novel. I've never seen uh, Raise the Titanic, but uh, I have seen the moment where the ship is brought out of the water, and it's fairly ridiculous. Following 1958's A Night to Remember, a well-made and faithful adaptation of Waterlord's seminal book on the sinking, there was James Cameron's 1997 Titanic, which inserted a love story full of dreadful dialogue into the story, but also used CGI to far advance the 1958 film in terms of the drama and scale of the sinking. It was the most expensive film ever made, and became the most successful ever. With the coming of the internet, there is now a treasure trove of information that keeps on coming, and debate still rages about certain details, including the aforementioned possibility that the ship that went down may have actually been the Olympic, deliberately sunk in an insurance scam. This possibility is roundly dismissed by the vocal majority, who have always been troubled enough by the sense of fate in the official account of the sinking. If the Titanic had heeded any of the six ice messages, if ice conditions had been normal, if the night had been rough or moonlit, if the iceberg had been sighted 15 seconds sooner, if her watertight bulkheads had been one deck higher, if she'd carried enough lifeboats for all, if the Californian had had 24-hour wireless and so on, things could have been very different. But they weren't, and all went against her. A Greek tragedy. 
The best that has ever been possible since the disaster has been to weigh all the evidence carefully and give an honest opinion about what happened on the incredible night the Titanic went down, as well as trying to learn the hard lessons. The mystique continues to grow, perhaps because of the metaphorical value of the story. For most, the creep towards inevitable death is slow. On the Titanic on April 15th, death came relatively quickly to 1,500 people, but the hours leading up to the moment of truth may have seemed like a lifetime. There may also be sensed something significant in the fact that the Titanic story is one about water. That magical liquid covers approximately 71% of the Earth's surface, and we are all composed of around 65% of it as well. We depend on the fresh version of it for our survival, and as stated earlier, the wise man should also fear and respect it in terms of the vast bodies of water that contain it. Then there is the idea that as a microcosm, the whole world was on that ship, or at least a fairly comprehensive representation of extremes of lifestyle and temperament. The class system and the belief that the world couldn't actually be equal largely determined who lived and died, but at the same time imminent death sought to remove distinctions. At the same time that the privileged Lady Duff Gordon was making a remarkably shallow remark about the loss of her secretary's nightdress just as the ship went down, depths of emotion were also being felt that would in some cases take a lifetime to reconcile. The survivors later said that the disaster had brought on the rest of their lives a sense of calm and a new perspective. John B. Thayer quoted at the beginning of this piece as saying that the world of today awoke on April 15, 1912, also said that, quote, Nothing was revealed that wasn't known the night before, implying that there is something deep down in every person who knows that reality is never quite so. Perhaps the survivors found the ultimate reality, that every day must be appreciated to the full. The last words will be left to Michael McCorgan, curator of maritime history at Ulster Folk and Transport Museum. Quote, Titanic is seen in today's world as another example of man interfering with aspects of the natural world and it lies there today as a lesson for the present and future. The continuing appeal of the Titanic does seem to be as a parable, a universal lesson in the mystery of the human condition, a dramatic revelation of man's nobility and his fallibility in this mysterious and capricious world in which we live. And that's the end. I don't really have too much more to add. I think it's all been said there. It is a lesson, as we've already said a couple of times. It's something really worth studying or at least reading some more about. Just one more time, the books um, Night to Remember by Walter Lord and On a Sea of Glass, the film Night to Remember, and to some extent the Cameron film. I'm not a huge fan of it, but certainly it represents better than the earlier film, the scale of it, the amount of people that were on board. and Some of those uh, effect shots are generally pretty impressive. Also, there's the aforementioned um, Titanic, The Complete Story, which is um, part one, Death of a Dream, part two, The Legend Lives On. It's all in the show notes and all freely available online. There's uh, survivor testimonies available as well. Obviously, it depends how far you want to delve into this. Either way, I hope you've enjoyed this two-parter on the Titanic and I will be back soon with another episode of Life and Life Only. I think this is going to be the last one of the year. So, um... If you're listening to this at the end of November, beginning of December when it's coming out, I wish you a happy Christmas and a happy New Year, and we'll see you all in 2023. So all the best from me, and 